morning, Gryffindors. We, um, I, was, uh, I was not here last week. I didn't have the opportunity of hearing Zach's sermon except uh, on what? No, he was. No, I, li- I heard him later on on the CD. Um, I was not uh, absent because I was at the women's retreat. I was absent because I was at a uh, conference in St. Paul. This is the glamorous world, by the way, of, of evangelicalism. You go to conferences in Phoenix in July and St. Paul in February. Um, but what was really cool about being out there last week was I got to go to this church last Sunday. A friend of mine uh, here in the area is is going to be their, their next pastor. Um, so I figured I'd scope it out for him. Uh, this church once a month has Hip Hop Sunday. It was awesome. They had a bunch of people up front rapping. They had two guys who were breakdancing. This is the first time I've ever seen liturgical breakdance. I will say this is actually the first time I've ever seen liturgical dance done in a way that made me want to worship and not laugh. <clears throat> uh, we are not going to be introducing that at New Hope. Um, it would be awesome if we had somebody who could well, can, 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 she's pregnant. I don't think she can do that right now. Okay, well, we'll keep this in mind. Uh, but I, uh, but what, what was really cool about it, beyond the fact that these people really did it, did it well, um, is that it exp- you know, this is a church that is, is, is diverse. It's very, uh, very much a multicultural church, and, and they want to express the uh, the best uh, expressions of, of art um, among the various ethnicities that comprise their body. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of, of really good hymns that have been written by uh, dead white people, and there's a whole lot of really good hip-hop um, that is written by people who are neither dead nor white. And so that what they want to bring all that. Um, and, you know, there is there, there is something, as we know... Uh, about art that can be self-indulgent, uh, but there's something that can be really beautiful. I was impressed at how this church uh, brought that. Uh, on the self-indulgent side, though, you may have read this week. Uh, anybody remember who John Hinckley is? Back in 1981, tried to assassinate President Reagan. His th- idea was that if he did this, that Jodie Foster, the actress, would notice him and go out on a date with him. Uh, well, apparently... Uh, in the wake of last year's shooting of uh, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords by Jared Loeffner, uh, John Hinckley asked one of his therapists in jail, he said, wow, is that how people see me? When asked by music therapist Vern Hyde if he thought that was, in fact, the public's perception of him, Hinckley, who sought to assassinate President Reagan in 1981, uh, his, his therapist replied, yeah, I, I think they do. Hinckley then began to vent his frustrations, according to a November 2011 forensic psychiatrist report. Quote, it is impossible for me to change that. I don't have a microphone in my hand. I don't have the video camera, so no one can hear my music. No one can see my art, said Hinckley, who writes songs, plays guitar, and paints landscapes. I have these other aspects of my life that no one knows about. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. Nobody knows that. Hinckley then told Hyde, they just see me as the guy who tried to kill Reagan. 
one of the commenters on the story said his new title is going to be the artist formerly known as the guy who tried to kill Reagan. (laughs) But that reminded me of one of the things that Reagan used to do was uh, if, if there would be some sudden noise, like a balloon would pop or, or, or uh, you know, some car would backfire while he was speaking, he'd say, miss me, after that. And he always got a laugh. But uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, a connection to our sermon this week and last week uh, here in his address to the 1988 Republican Convention. Whatever you think of his politics, you certainly should be able to appreciate this. Will you play the clip, please? Before we came to Washington, Americans had just suffered the two worst back-to-back years of inflation in 60 years. Those are the facts. And as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. Interest rates had jumped to over 21%, the highest in 120 years, more than doubling the average monthly mortgage payments for working families, our families. When they sat around the kitchen table, it was not to plan summer vacations, it was to plan economic survival. Facts are stubborn things. Industrial agriculture production was down, and productivity was down for two consecutive years. The average week missed me. The average weekly wage plunged nine percent. The median family income fell five and a half percent. Facts are stubborn things. Our friends on the other side had actually passed the single highest tax bill in the 200-year history of the United States. Auto loans, because of their policies, went up to 17%. So our great factories began shutting down. Fuel costs jumped through the atmosphere, more than doubling. Then people waited in gas lines as well as unemployment lines. Facts are stupid things. Stubborn things, I should say. Ah, that's one of those one of those great lines. Facts are stupid things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have to again. You have to admire the professionalism of a person who can deliver that while he's on a platform that's shaking up and down like that. As Zach pointed out last week, correctly. The quote that begins, facts are stubborn things, does not end just like you, as I had rendered it. In fact, the quote is from John Adams, another former president. He said, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And I think Paul would certainly agree with that. But in the passage that we're in now, in this part of Romans, one of the things that Paul is trying to get across very clearly is that not only are facts stubborn things, but a whole lot of the people hearing him are stubborn as well. Going back to the beginning of chapter 2, where Kendall started us off a couple weeks ago, Paul says, you therefore, you have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else For whatever point you judge the other one, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the very same things. As we talked about before, Paul in chapter 1 sets up his 
hearers. He talks about all these wicked, nasty, awful things that those naughty people do. And he's got them in his corner. He's got them cheering him on. So, yeah, you, you tell him, you give it to him. And then he says, now you, you do the very same things. Oh. See, we know, Paul says in verse 2, that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, right? I mean, God's not making this up. This is, this is only going to be based on what, what, really, what really happens. God isn't, isn't about the business of holding people responsible for things they didn't do, unless, of course, you're talking about Jesus. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and then you do the same thing, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Really? It's like he's saying in verse 1, look, you are condemning yourself. And, he, and you can imagine his hearers there saying, what? What do you mean I'm condemning myself? Paul says God's judgment is based on truth. And they're thinking, yeah, it is based on truth. He says, all right, well, here's some truth for you, Paul says. When you pass judgment on them and you do the same things, what, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is there to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's going to give to each person according to what he's done. And there he's quoting the Psalms, he's quoting the prophets, he's quoting Torah. It's all through Old Testament. And his hearers, of course, would have agreed. Yeah, yeah, he's going to give to everyone what he's done, right? But somehow they're thinking that that doesn't apply to them. No, Paul says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God doesn't show favoritism. And you can see his hearers saying, "Well, no, yeah, I know, I know all that, but, 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 but I, I, I'm one, of, I'm one of God's people." You, you can imagine at this point, he's addressing the, the Jewish believers here, Jewish Christians. They're saying, "Hey, look, I, I came up, I came up in the shul, I came up going to synagogue, I came up observing the the feasts and, and keeping kosher. I, 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 I heard Torah every Sabbath in the synagogue. I, I'm, I, I should be all right. I mean, I'm, I'm covered, right?" Paul says, look, God doesn't show favoritism. Just because you did that doesn't mean that you're somehow in a special class. Just because you got born to the right people. Now, Paul says, okay, so you did that. So what? Anticipating what Billy Graham said, just sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Look, all who sin apart from the law, Paul says in 12, are also going to perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. See, it's, it's, not, 
It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Well, and yeah, his hearers might have said, yeah, but, but those Gentiles, they, they can't even obey Torah, right? They haven't heard it, so they can't obey it. I mean, there's a, a passage in this, uh, this book called First, uh, Second Baruch that, that demonstrates this. This is for the Jewish writing from the early second century. It, uh, it says that, uh, you, O Lord, my Lord, you know that which is in your creation, for you commanded the dust one day to produce Adam. You knew the number of those who were born from him. You knew how they sinned before you. Again, this is a, a Jewish text of roughly around the same time Paul was writing. Kind of gives you a window into the kind of thinking that there would have been among uh, some of his, uh, his Jewish hearers at that point. It says, you knew the number of those who were born from Adam, how they sinned before you, those, you, those who existed and who didn't recognize you as their creator. And concerning all those, their end will put them to shame. And your law, which they transgressed, will repay them on your day. So the idea is, yeah, Torah is going to condemn everybody who needs to be condemned. They didn't have a chance to hear Torah, so now they're hosed. Paul says, you know, actually, the way it works is that Gentiles, who, when, when Gentiles who don't have Torah, when they do by nature the things that are required by Torah... It's like their Torah for themselves, even though they don't have Torah, because they show that the requirements of Torah are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. He's saying, look, just because somebody hasn't had this law of God, God's Torah read to them or preached to them, just because they haven't read that doesn't mean that they don't, by very nature of being human, by the reality of the human conscience, have a, a sense of some things being right and some things being wrong. He said there's a way in which God basically has them demonstrate Torah to themselves when they realize through the feeling of guilt or shame that they have done something that they shouldn't do. The very nature of, of humanity is that we can't get away with doing stuff and not feel bad about it. That's why uh, somebody like John Hinckley is understood to be a sociopath because he wants to say, well, I'm an artist and nobody appreciates me as an artist. Uh, you know, all they see is that I'm the guy who shot Reagan. Well, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a big deal that you shot Reagan, right? It reminds me of a great joke that Chris West tells about a Scotsman. You can ask him sometime. But look, there, there are a whole lot of misunderstood artists out there. There are a whole lot of people whose art is not received, who put out stuff that nobody's interested in. They're called baristas. <laughs> but most of them don't try to shoot a president. And so most of them aren't known as the guy who tried to shoot the president. As Paul would say, you know, there's a circuit missing for John Hinckley because he's saying, you know, that you're, their, their, their consciences should, are bearing witness. Their thoughts will now accuse and now even defend them. So every time your conscience says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, your conscience should also be saying, yeah, but you tried to shoot the president. C.K. Barrett is a great biblical interpreter, rendered it this, this way. It's beautiful. He said, their inward thoughts in mutual debate accuse or else excuse them. And all of our consciences both accuse and excuse us, don't they? All of us when we realize that we have messed up. 
can also be reminded, yes, but there are things we've done well. And then every time we start getting too full of ourselves, they remind us, yeah, but then there was that. Yeah, actually, Paul says, Gentiles can obey Torah, except it turns out they can't either. And we're going to be getting into this as we get into Romans. He's going to point out the fact that nobody can perfectly keep God's law, whether you have it revealed to you or not, whether it's been read to you in synagogue or whether you are simply aware of the righteous requirements of God's law by the nature of your human conscience. The fact is that at the end of the day, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, Paul says. At some point, everything is going to be revealed, and at some point, everybody's wickedness will be revealed along with the righteous things they've done. This is a problem because God is going to judge wickedness. God is going to judge evil. There will come a day when there will be no place in the universe for that which is false or wicked or evil. And God will clear all of that out. Now, the good news here, of course, is that for those of us who are in Christ, that evil, that wickedness, is born by Him. He, the one person who doesn't have it coming to Him, takes it upon Himself. That punishment that is rightly due us is exacted on Jesus. But I think Paul would say, you know, just because you have that as your identity, just because you are in Christ, that doesn't mean that you should treat God's kindness, His grace, His mercy with contempt. And Paul observes, because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. It's like you're not even availing yourself of the redemption that could be yours because you are just focused on what all those other wicked people are doing. To those who are th- sitting there contentedly thinking, oh yeah, well, we're just we're going to escape God's judgment because, you know, we're set. You know, we, we're under Torah. Now we recognize Jesus as Messiah. Paul says, you know, what I'm noticing is I'm noticing some hardness. Sclerates is the Greek word. Elsewhere in the New Testament we read about sclerocardia, hardness of heart. Right? You may have heard somebody, hopefully not, diagnose you with atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Paul says, "I'm, I'm detecting some hardness some stubbornness. See, our sin leads, if we confess it, if we are repentant, it leads to an experience of humility. See, God's kindness in response to our sin can lead to our repentance. But what's going on here, Paul says, is that your sin... And God's kindness in response to it isn't leading to repentance. It's just leading to you being blasé about the whole thing. It's making you 
self-satisfied. Making you stubborn. It's making you sin more. Paul in 1 Timothy talks about people who have a, a seared conscience. They said their, their consciences has been, have been seared as with a hot iron. It's like they're numb to it. You get to a point where you don't even feel bad when you do something wrong. You think, oh, I'll be all right. God loves me. Whether John Hinckley has a seared conscience or is mentally ill, certainly he sounds like somebody who's got that stubbornness, that hardness, lack of repentance. But the question applies to us, I think, too. Is there any evidence in our lives? Are there any stubborn facts that show us to be treating God's mercy with contempt? Do we take the cleansing of our consciences, the, the joy of unloading the burden of guilt, of shame? Do we empty our backpack of our junk just in order to fill it back up again? Do we look at relationships that God has restored miraculously? And do we then treat them not with care, but with indifference, maybe benign neglect, but a neglect nonetheless, same kind of thing that got us into trouble? Do we experience God's blessings, God's material blessings, and respond to that by spending what we get on our pleasures and not taking care of the needs of those around us, those who are in need, not addressing the work of His kingdom that He's called us to be part of. Think about an experience I had several years ago in seminary. I was telling a friend that I was going to have to sell my guitar so that I could pay for tuition. He said, i got a better idea. How about this? You keep your guitar, and I'll give you $100 every month until you're done. And he did. And that was really toward the beginning, so he gave me a lot more toward seminary than I would have gotten for that guitar. He said, you should call that thing Isaac, because you thought it was lost, and now you have it back. I was reminded of that when we were in Torah last year, and we're reading about redemption about how when something gets gets lost, then your kinsman can come along and redeem it for you and, and restore back to you what you had that you lost. I remember thinking about that, and I remember thinking with profound guilt about the fact that several years later, when I needed money to pay for tuition, I ended up selling the thing. And what's troubling to me is that it took years before I realized what I had done, before I felt bad about that, before I felt any guilt or any responsibility to make it right. Is there any evidence in our lives 
Are there any stubborn facts that show us to be treating God's mercy with contempt? God's mercy is vast. His kindness is beyond what we can possibly imagine. His grace to us is so, so rich. But we can take even something so beautiful, so good, and hijack it to make it an excuse to go and do as we see fit, to be complacent, to be disobedient. God's kindness is to lead us to repentance, not to more stubbornness and more sin, not to a seared conscience. Facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, the dictates of our passion, Adam said they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And just as Zach talked about the difficult and painful work for a company involved in realizing what the facts tell you about how well your processes are working or are not, We can go through the difficult work of examining ourselves, of asking God to show us where in our lives we are treating His mercy with contempt. That's one of the things that Lent is for. It's, you know, sometimes people in our more low church tradition have looked at Lent as this sort of, you know, Catholic mumbo jumbo. That's just you know the thing that those people do over there because you know they have to follow something and they you know can't eat meat on Fridays so they go to the seafood buffet and that's really kind of not the point. But I think there's a great deal of wisdom in the church's tradition of observing a period of repentance, of self-examination, and remembering that we. are utterly lost without the mercy and kindness of God. And that He calls us to reflect that in our lives. And He wants to manifest that. And He wants to make that happen. And He he gives us His Holy Spirit so that we can do that. This is not something where He sends us off on our own to make this happen. He gives us every aid that we would need. He's so gracious. He's so kind to us. But that kindness needs to lead to repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm grateful for your kindness to me, for the grace that you shower on me, for the fact that you do not give up on me as much as I certainly deserve it. I'm grateful for the conviction of your Holy Spirit, the way that you tell me about my sin. You make me realize it even when I don't want to, even when it takes me a long time to see it. Pray for myself and I pray for my friends here that Lent would be an opportunity for us to hear from you about the places where we need to be healed. May you show us 
the areas of our lives where we need to have you work. We pray that we would do that with humility. And we would have the courage to do that because it's not easy. Pray that we would be a help to one another, that we would speak truth to each other when we're asked to, that we would pray for each other, that we would help each other in any way we can. Thank you for this community with whom I have the privilege of going through Lent. We pray that ultimately this would be the edifying of your body, the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.